Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for August 31st, 2023, the only podcast that separates the facts from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Gabon's military seizes control in Gabon following a contested election. Hurricane Adalia slams Florida. Paul Whelan is seen in a Russian prison video. While the Ukrainian strike in Russian territory damages a key airfield. Meta deletes over 7,700 accounts allegedly linked to a PRC influence campaign. Sentencing is delayed for two former Proud Boy leaders. Australia eyes its indigenous voice referendum. A failed push for gun reform in Tennessee spills into tension on its house floor. Google tests a new watermark for AI images. And a seven-minute cancer jab rolls out in the UK. We begin with Gabon's military seizing control of the country in a contested election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, Reuters, Washington Post, CNBC, and Guardian. After President Ali Bongo Odimba was declared the victor of Saturday's contested national election in Gabon, military officers appeared on national television on Wednesday to announce they were seizing power. News of the coup prompted widespread celebrations and reports of gunfire in the capital, Libreville. The officers said they represented all of the Central African nation's security and defense forces, adding that the election results were canceled, all borders were closed until further notice, and state institutions dissolved. The military leader said President Bongo was put under house arrest. If the implementation of the takeover is successful, the coup could end nearly 60 years of rule by the Bongo family. Ali Bongo took over in 2009 from his father Omar, who was in charge starting in 1967. The Gabon coup is the latest in a string of military takeovers in African countries, including the most recent in Niger. Since 2021, there have also been coups in Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, and Chad. The leader of the new junta, General Bryce Olegui Nguima, told the French newspaper Le Monde that he and other generals would be meeting to select the head of a transitional government. Gabon's former colonial ruler, France, has 400 soldiers permanently deployed to the country for training and military support. France also maintains strong economic ties with Gabon regarding mining and petroleum. Eric, thanks for the facts on that first story. We're going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Le Monde. France strongly condemns the attempted coup in Gabon and is monitoring the situation closely. The coup leaders should respect the will of the people and honor the outcome of Saturday's national election. Ali Bongo Odimba should be reinstated as president of Gabon and democracy must prevail. The establishment critical narrative comes from Barron's. France's past support for corrupt and authoritarian leaders in its former colonies has led to a situation in which Paris is literally being chased out of French-speaking African countries in an epidemic of military coups. France's once undisputed geopolitical power in the region is being challenged by China and Russia. Volatile situations like this one are the result of unscrupulous French actions and Paris's waning regional sway. 
and French fries that are overdone and too greasy. That, that's that's a, that's actually the big reason all this is happening. Well, that's when you get that French regional sway in your French fry. You get that French fry regional sway. Well, have, yeah. Have you ever noticed a French? It doesn't just it doesn't just automatically. Have you ever, no, have you ever noticed that the French fries always sway southwest? My French fries have never swayed that direction. They never have. So I don't know where you're getting your fries. That's probably because you're in Oklahoma. It sways a different way in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Hurricane Adalia slams into Florida's Big Bend. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, WESH, and CTV News. On Wednesday morning, Hurricane Adalia made landfall in Florida's Big Bend as a Category 3 cyclone after briefly reaching a Category 4 in the overnight hours. Later in the day, the storm settled into a Category 1 as it reached southeastern Georgia. According to the National Hurricane Center, or the NHC, the storm saw winds of up to 125 miles per hour, the strongest hurricane the Gulf Coast has seen in over 125 years. The NHC warned of a significant storm surge and issued two extreme wind warnings, as some areas broke record inundation with up to nine feet of flooding. Ahead of the storm's impacts, residents were advised to evacuate to areas less vulnerable to the high winds, flooding, and storm surge, with residents from at least 28 counties cleared out. Hurricane Adalia is expected to continue to weaken as it moves inland, and according to the NHC, the storm will continue on a north-northeastward track with impacts to Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina through the afternoon of Wednesday and into Thursday. As thousands of officials and rescuers were deployed, President Joe Biden and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a call, with the latter reportedly indicating that the state's needs are currently being met. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with narrative A, and it's coming from Carbon Brief. The warming of our planet is creating a hot tub-like environment in the waters off the coast of Florida. These abnormal conditions have become the norm. And the consequence is the rapid intensification of storms that cause catastrophic damage and loss of life when making landfall. This new normal changes the landscape of coastal living and leaves millions of people facing the threat of back-to-back catastrophic destruction. And Forbes is going to back that up with a narrative B. While climate change is an urgent issue, journalists and activists have an obligation to separate the facts from fiction and describe environmental problems honestly and accurately. The catastrophic framing of climate change does far more harm than good, not only by impacting the mental health of our youth, but by alienating and polarizing large portions of the population and distracting from other important issues. Climate alarmism must be taken with a grain of salt. Eric, I don't know about your kids, but my kids could care less about recycling. Gosh, they're constantly throwing cans in the trash and cardboard in the trash. And remember when we were kids and what affected me and kind of motivated me into recycling was the crying Indian looking at the litter. Do you remember that? Oh, my goodness. That put me, you know what? That put my littering to a stop immediately. That, and, you know, I used to be a pyro until I saw the Smokey the Bear commercials, and then I put that to a close, too. I thought, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. When I, when I mention recycling to my kids, they immediately go jump on their bikes again. I'm like, oh, come on, kids. You know what it is, Eric? They just don't give a hoot. <laughs> <Okay>. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs>
In our next story, Paul Whelan is seen in a Russian prison video. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, CNN, ABC News, Al Jazeera, and Fox News. Paul Whelan, a U.S. citizen and former Marine convicted of espionage in Russia, was seen for the first time in three years on Monday when he appeared on the Russian state-funded news channel RT in a video recorded in May. In the footage, Whelan, who denies the espionage allegations and declined to be interviewed, is seen with other inmates in various areas of the prison in a penal colony in the Mordovia region. Whelan, who holds U.S., Irish, British, and Canadian citizenship, was arrested in Moscow in 2018 for allegedly participating in an intelligence operation. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison in 2020 on espionage charges. On Tuesday, following years of U.S.-Russian negotiations over Whelan's release, Washington called the video footage, quote, reassuring and urged the immediate release of the 52-year-old, who the Biden administration claims is being wrongfully detained. Late last year, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he had made a substantive proposal to the Russian government, but Whelan wasn't considered in a prisoner swap. In December, Moscow instead released U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner in exchange for arms dealer Victor Bout. U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich also remains in Russian custody on a 20-year espionage conviction. Thanks, Eric. Our first spin is a pro-Russia narrative provided by RT. While Western media acts concerned about the U.S. spies in Russian custody, it should focus more on the U.S. hunting Russians in other countries and jailing them by the dozens on trumped-up charges. Washington lives by its own rules, ignoring the interests of other countries, but Moscow will never attempt these double standards and will continue to push for the release of its citizens in U.S. custody. CNN gives us the anti-Russia narrative. While RT is nothing but a Kremlin propaganda mouthpiece, the video at least proves Whelan is healthy and unbroken. At the same time, it underscores yet again how Russia is locking up innocent people to use as political bargaining chips, even while the U.S. isn't holding any high-level Russian spies. While the U.S. is doing its best to bring its citizens home, it relies on the help of its allies in Moscow's cynical game. Planes were damaged in Ukrainian strike on a Russian airfield. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, TASS, and Ukranska Pravda. Continuing its near-daily attacks into the Russian territory, Ukraine launched a wave of drones into six regions of Russia in the early hours of Wednesday. Russia's defense ministry said that the drones were brought down over the regions of Oryel, Bryansk, Ryazan, Kaluga, and Moscow. However, drones penetrated air defenses and struck the city of Pskov in the northwest of the country, near the border of Latvia and Estonia. Emergency services said that Pskov's military airport was struck in the attack, sparking a blaze that damaged four 1176 transport planes. An emergency service official said that as a result of a drone attack, four 1176 planes were damaged, a fire broke out, two aircraft were engulfed in flames, but there were no reports of civilian casualties. Mikhail Verdernikov, governor of the Peskov region, said that the airport has been closed for the remainder of the day, while assessments into the extent of the damage continue. Meanwhile, Russia launched one of its largest drone and missile attacks into Ukraine in weeks. Ukraine's Air Force said that it destroyed 43 of 44 aerial targets, including all 28 missiles and 50 of 16 drones. 
They added that the targets were shot down over the regions of Kiev, Cherkasky, Mykolaiv, and Odessa. However, as a result of falling debris in Kiev and its wider region, two civilians were killed and three more were injured, local officials said. Falling drone debris also damaged an infrastructure facility and a railway track in the Zydermar region, officials there said. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from Kyiv Post. Ukraine will continue to attack inside Russian territory, and the scale of the attacks will increase until Russia is expelled from Ukrainian soil. And that's going to be followed up with a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. Ukraine's attacks inside Russian territory are a demonstration of the futility of its counteroffensive, and it shows that they have no other options left. And we have a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 40% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. Wait, then what is this? I know, really. (laughs) What's been going on for the last year and a half? Well, the prediction came true, (laughs) right? (laughs) Meta deletes over 7,700 accounts linked to a PRC influence campaign. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, New York Times, Engadget, and Verge. Facebook's parent company Meta announced Tuesday that it had removed over 7,700 Facebook accounts, 954 Facebook pages, 15 Facebook groups, and 15 Instagram accounts linked to a Chinese influence campaign targeting the U.S., Taiwan, the U.K., and other countries. The operation, which initially focused on discrediting the 2019 pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong before shifting to COVID-related material, was first discovered in 2019. The company has since repeatedly spotted and removed recurring spam accounts. According to Meta, the accounts tried to spread pro-China messages, including, quote, positive commentary about its province Xinjiang and the criticisms of the United States, Western foreign policies, and critics of the Chinese government, including journalists and researchers. Other influence headlines included, quote, U.S. bombing of Nord Stream is the first step in the European destruction plan, which were spread via what was characterized as an inauthentic following that likely came from fake engagement farms. The alleged influence campaign dubbed Spamiflage and garnered an estimated 560,000 Facebook followers is the seventh of its kind to be taken down by Meta in the last six years. However, similar accounts are still running on other apps such as TikTok, X, LiveJournal, and Blogspot. While the company said Spamiflage consistently struggled to reach beyond its own fake echo chamber, Meta reiterated that the operation is large, prolific, and persistent. Eric, thanks for the facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative provided by NPR Online. This is a big win for America in the fight against foreign authoritarianism propaganda campaigns. Countries like China and Russia are increasingly using Western-based social media platforms to insert upbeat messages about their own governments while sowing doubt about the democratic institutions of the West. This will be an indefinite fight against Beijing and Moscow, which means platforms like Meta must continuously improve their propaganda detection and remove mechanisms. Follow that up with an establishment critical narrative coming from Jacobin. The U.S. government has used certain atrocities committed by Beijing to blur the lines between being against war with China and in favor of its social policies. Just as McCarthyites did to anti-nuclear war activists during the Cold War, today the media and government are working in tandem to paint anyone who wishes to avoid a world war as China apologist, 
that propaganda is just as strong in the West and arguably even worse since its goal is to prop up a rampant military-industrial complex. So any panic over influence campaigns must be taken with a grain of salt. And the nerds of Metaculus have another opinion on this story. They think that there's a 20% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war before 2035. The sentencing of the Proud Boys has been delayed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, CNBC, Yahoo News, NBC, Reuters, and Associated Press. The two former Proud Boys leaders who were scheduled to be sentenced Wednesday for their roles in the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol riots had their sentence hearings delayed, according to a U.S. Marshals Service spokesperson. Former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tario and one of his subordinates, Ethan Nordine, were the first of five former members of the conservative group to face sentencing, with the three others set for Thursday and Friday. However, the hearings were postponed after Judge Timothy Kelly was out sick. Though initially reported as an emergency, a court spokesperson confirmed that there is no emergency, and court filings show that Tario's sentencing has been rescheduled for September 5th. Meanwhile, Nordine will be sentenced on September 1st. Joe Biggs, Zach Reel, and Dominic Pizzola, who prosecutors argue should face 33, 30, and 20 years in prison, respectively, will also face rescheduled sentences. The five defendants were convicted after a four-month trial of seditious conspiracy charges related to the riots. This comes as the founder of fellow right-wing group of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, was sentenced to 18 years in prison for his role in the riots. Prosecutors want Tario and his fellow Proud Boys to receive the same sentence plus 15 years for alleged terrorism. Former President Donald Trump, who is the overwhelming frontrunner for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, also faces charges for his role in the events of January 6th. He maintains that he has done nothing wrong and his trial is set for March 4th. Those were the facts, and we begin our round of spins with a left narrative coming from MSNBC. The Proud Boys are a radical right-wing militant organization that has shown it will resort to violence to impose its agenda. Its leaders are domestic terrorists who conspired to overthrow American democracy and subvert the results of a free and fair election. While they will now serve time for their crimes, the nation must be vigilant to ensure that organizations like the Proud Boys don't spread their dangerous agenda. And left narratives are usually followed up with right narratives, and this one is prepared by American greatness. The Department of Justice has been weaponized against its political opponents, and the Proud Boys leaders are just a handful of the hundreds of people being targeted for political dissent. The media is in lockstep with the government as it pushes a warped narrative about the events on January 6, 2021, as crooked courts redefine terms like terrorism and sedition to take down Trump and his supporters. The nerds of Metaculus give us their narrative as well, and they say there's a 50% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. Can you be both? Can you be jailed and incarcerated? If it's possible, Donald Trump is going to figure out how to do it. Um, and he's got four cases that he's facing right now. It's, it, that, that's going to be like, uh, what is that? When you when you get an Emmy and a grant and an EGOT, 
you know, is 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 there some sort of jail equivalent? Yeah. If there's not, there's going to be after this thing. I guarantee it's, you. It's it's going to be called the Trump. Hey, did you get a Trump last week? No, I didn't. But my buddy did. Boy, he got Trump. Oh man, <laughs> I barely, barely. I just escaped. Get, not getting. A oh, Trump. you did. Oh, so lucky close. You. So close. Just barely. So damn close. News from down under as Australia sets a date for an indigenous voice referendum. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, BBC News, the Sydney Morning Herald, Daily Mail and Guardian. On Wednesday, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced that the voice to parliament referendum, which seeks to create an all indigenous advisory body within the federal government, will take place on October 14th. More than 17 million registered voters will be asked to cast a vote on whether they approve of amending the Constitution to recognize the First Nations peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The voice was proposed by the 2017 Old Uru Statement, a historic document drafted by over 250 First Nations leaders as part of a demand for reforms affecting Indigenous Australians with whom Australia has never signed a treaty. Build as a once-in-a-generation vote, the first referendum in more than two decades, comes as any constitutional change, amendment, or addition must be directly approved by the Australian people. Australian referendums require a double majority to pass, meaning more than 50% of the voting public and 50% of states must vote to approve. Opinion polls suggest that national support for The Voice has fallen from about two-thirds to less than 48%, over the past 12 months, achieving a majority in no more than two states since July. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story from Australia. We've got a left narrative to begin our round of spins, and it has been prepared by The Guardian. This referendum is perhaps the first serious chance Australia has to chart a new, equitable course for the country, one that includes the voices of the indigenous peoples of Australia. While not a perfect solution, The enshrinement of an Indigenous Advisory Committee would help rectify Australia's shameful history of disenfranchisement and racism against the first people to set foot on the continent's soil. Australia should ignore the old guard and establish a new and fair relationship with Indigenous Australians. Follow that with a right narrative coming from American Spectator. The voice to Parliament is a dangerous proposal that, if passed, will permanently divide the Australian nation on the basis of race. Australians need only look at neighboring countries to understand the risks of approving such an advisory body, as New Zealand's Waitangi Tribunal has been swiftly hijacked by so-called social justice activists. There are other ways the government can go about improving rights for indigenous populations before undermining unity in the nation. And the nerds have a lot to say today. They think that there's a 6% chance that the Australian Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum will pass if it is held before 2026. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I just hope it doesn't change the price of the Bloomin' Onion at Outback because... I wouldn't be surprised if they shut down all the Outback <laughs> steakhouses and the indigenous people are like, that's a, that's a blemish on our country. <laughs> this will inspire a new tour similar to that of the uh, like the, 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 the Irish dancing tour. It will be called the Didgeridoo Tour. Oh, Didgeridoo. Wow. My, fa- my wow. favorite wow. instrument. I love that. You add a little rain stick to that. It's perfect. The Tennessee special legislative session ends without new gun laws. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Tennessean, New York Times, Reuters, Fox News, 
Associated Press, and Washington Post. Tennessee's special legislative session ended Tuesday without any significant changes to the state's gun laws, despite the efforts of advocates months after the worst school shooting in the state's history. Republican Governor Bill Lee had called the special session on public safety to reform the state's gun laws in response to the March killing of three students and three adults at Nashville's Covenant School. Lee's goal of passing a red flag law and other public safety measures was rejected by Republicans, who hold a supermajority in the state's General Assembly and view such laws as threats to citizens' Second Amendment rights. At the close of the session, a brief scuffle broke out with Democrats Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, black legislators who won back their seats after being expelled from the body during the contentious debate over gun laws in April, confronted House Speaker Cameron Sexton. Previously, Republicans voted to prevent Jones from speaking on or debating bills Monday for what they called a violation of newly enacted rules. The special session produced an extension of a tax break for gun safes and a free gun lock program, stronger background checks, and a law requiring the State Bureau of Investigation to conduct an annual study of human trafficking. Thank you, Adam, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from The Independent. Even a school shooting that resulted in the deaths of innocent children couldn't get Republicans who are heavily supported by gun lobbyists to pass the type of common-sense gun laws that can make communities safer. Even worse, Republicans in Tennessee continue to do what they can to stifle opposition speech. Tennessee needs better representation to stand up to lethal gun violence. And we're going to follow that Democratic narrative with a Republican narrative provided by Breitbart. Always in a hurry to exploit a tragedy to advance their assault on the Second Amendment, Democrats were again advocating for laws, namely a so-called red flag law, that would have done nothing to stop the Covenant shooter. Most gun restrictions are useless in the face of criminals and mentally unstable people who will stop at nothing to commit an egregious act. The Tennessee legislature did what it could to make the state safer within the Constitution. We have a nerd narrative as well for this story coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.4 small firearms per capita in the USA by 2029. Yeah, how many guns do you have, Eric? Well, I just got two, to be honest with you. I got my right one and my left one. All I got to do is raise my arms and flex, and they run. Oh, man, what a gun show. <laughs> I've just got my Red Rider BB gun. You did? Well, don't shoot your eye out. Too late, I shot them both out. Google tests watermarks to identify AI images. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Verge, and Gadgets Now. Google's DeepMind is testing out its new artificial intelligence AI technology, dubbed SynthID, which says it will be able to label images that have been generated by AI. The labels, however, will be invisible to the human eye to not ruin the picture. The watermark is embedded in the pixels of the image. But DeepMind CEO Demis Hassabi says it won't change the quality or experience of the image. He added that it can also defend against attempts to erase the watermark like cropping or resizing. Synth ID, whose three levels of competence are detected, not detected, and possibly detected, is currently only available to a select group of Vertex AI customers who use Google's text-to-image diffusion model Imagine, which is similar to Midjourney and Dall-E. 
as worries over deepfake photos grow, most recently including fake mugshots of former President Trump, Hasabis seems to want SynthID to be an internet-wide standard for AI detection. Other companies are creating their own tools that use cryptographic metadata to tag AI content. Other big tech companies promising to implement watermarks are Meta and Amazon with Meta announcing that it will add watermarks to AI-generated videos from its unreleased project Make-A-Video. In addition, China has imposed a ban on AI-generated images that don't have watermarks. Chinese companies like Alibaba are currently utilizing Tongi Wanzhang, a text-to-image tool. Thanks, Eric. Our spins are going to start with a narrative A provided by DeepMind. Google understands that pictures truly are worth a thousand words which is why it's working to build a firewall between false images made by bad actors and the end users they're manipulating. The tech giant also understands the importance of not altering the style and beauty of creators' images, which makes this microscopic watermark the perfect solution to the world's technological problems. Narrative B comes from the MIT Technology Review. While watermarks will help combat AI misuse, questions still remain surrounding their efficacy and the public's interpretation of what they actually are. Most people still regard watermarks as a company's logo in the bottom right corner of a picture. So Google and the other AI companies must communicate better what purpose these new watermarks will serve and how they will work. Furthermore, even sophisticated watermarks are still vulnerable to alterations, something that must be tackled before the world can trust big tech to moderate this issue. And the Metaculous Prediction community is being busy today. They've got another nerd narrative, and this one says that there's an 83% chance that there will be an event precipitated by AI that causes at least 100 deaths and or at least $1 billion in economic damage by 2032. I noticed some of the images that I've seen of you on the net have been, they've already been watermarked. Yeah, but the, th- the thing is, I already i already photoshopped them and made them, I'm, I'm, I'm it's it's not really my body. You know, I put it on a nicer looking body person. And then I watermark that. Ah. So then that becomes the truth. Okay. That that's my I, my body that's, you know, in good shape like that. Yeah, yeah. I, and I could just keep eating and get as fat as I it want. It looked like Danny DeVito's body, so I thought what? maybe No, that one was gone, supposed gone to be awry. pulled. That would that one was supposed to that was a joke. That was oh dang it. You that one's out, huh? Okay. Well sorry Danny. Yeah, sorry Danny. <laughs> And the U.K. is the first nation to roll out a seven-minute cancer jab. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, England, The Telegraph, and Daily Mail. On Tuesday, the National Health Service, or the NHS, announced that the U.K. will be the first country in the world to offer a jab that treats cancer in seven minutes. The NHS will reportedly treat 3,600 patients who suffer from lung, breast, liver, and bladder cancers, among others. The time-saving injection will be administered annually. The announcement comes after the NHS faced public criticism over a soaring number of patient referrals and the staggering delays in the onset of treatment. Currently, cancer patients receive an intravenous treatment that can take 30 to 60 minutes to administer. The new treatment, atezolizumabab, which is an immunotherapy drug also known as Tincitric, is around 75% quicker and much less invasive. Atezazolizumabab blocks a protein that stops the immune system from attacking the invasive cells. In cases where the patient has had both surgery and chemotherapy, trial data shows a 34% reduction in the recurrence of the cancer or death. 
As a result of a deal struck between the NHS and Tecentrics manufacturer, Roke, patients receiving the speedy treatment will do so at no additional cost. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. iNews gives us our first spin. It's a pro-establishment narrative. The Tecentric shot rollout will free up valuable time for NHS cancer teams, as well as reduce cancer patients' waiting times for appointments and delays in receiving treatment. This is another example of the UK government's commitment to investing in cancer research, prevention, and treatment. There's also an establishment critical narrative provided by BBC News. Doctors and specialists across the UK are sounding the alarm as critical life-saving treatment for thousands of patients is delayed due to staffing shortages and COVID backlogs. Before rolling out the shot, the NHS and the UK governments must develop and implement a strategy in addressing its healthcare system shortcomings that cost people their lives. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be a breakthrough in the treatment of hard-to-treat cancers by February of 2032. Thank you for listening to The Verity Podcast for Thursday, August 31st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team extracts both the key facts that the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on the Verity Podcast, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.